As a child, one of my favorite movies was the Disney picture, The Swiss Family Robinson. The film was shot on the Caribbean island of Tobago. The story is about a family that gets shipwrecked on a South Seas island. With little hopes of rescue, they make the most of their situation and they create a tropical paradise. They build an elaborate treehouse out of uh, scrap and lumber from the boat. They invent a system for running water. They add conveniences to their lifestyle. After a tangle with some pirates, the Robinson family lives happily ever after. As a kid, I would watch that movie and I would imagine myself marooned on an exotic island, swims in the lagoon, life in a tree hut. What an easygoing, carefree kind of existence in a pristine, unspoiled garden Shangri-La. Even as an adult, it doesn't sound so bad. No more eight to fives, no more car repairs and traffic jams. No more bills and bosses. No more income tax and corrupt politicians. No more deadbolts and burglar alarms. No more wars and crime. I believe movies like The Swiss Family Robinson are popular because they play on a deep-seated longing in our heart, in every human heart. C.S. Lewis once observed, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. Here's the truth. God made you and I for the garden. Adam and Eve began life in a garden paradise. Sin got them evicted. And ever since, humans have had a desire to return whether we realize it or not, we long for the garden. And all that we do is in an attempt to get back there. Right now, it's a jungle out there. Our world is chaotic and out of control. But when the king of the jungle takes possession, he'll reign and rule. He'll tame the beasts and transform the jungle to a garden paradise. One day, yet future, God will fulfill our deep longing and return mankind to the garden from which we fell. The earth is due for an extreme makeover. God will repair the damage caused by sin and its judgment, and he'll restore this fallen planet to the paradise he intended. And God begins this process by ridding us of our arch nemesis. John writes in chapter 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished." At the end of chapter 19, John is near Jerusalem. We talked about this last time. He's providing us play by play for the mother of all battles. The nations have rallied to Armageddon to fight against the Christ. But Jesus returns despite their opposition. With his breath and with his brightness, he kills all of his enemies. But there are leaders who have orchestrated this revolt. The Antichrist and the false prophet are chief culprits. 
They've ordered the execution of everyone who worships Jesus and refuses their mark. Chapter 19 forecasts their capture and their disposal in the lake of fire. But the ringleader, the mastermind behind their rebellion, the devil himself in chapter 20 receives his fate. God sends an angel with a chain to incarcerate the devil. You know, the Bible teaches us that there are two places of spiritual punishment. One temporary, the other permanent. Hades is where unbelievers are today. It has the characteristics of fire and brimstone, but it's temporary. Whereas the lake of fire is eternal. And according to verse 14, in the end, Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. At the end of chapter 19, the devil's two stooges, the beast and the false prophet, receive their eternal torture. They're cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, we're told. Yet here, Satan is held over in Hades or in the bottomless pit. He's chained in hell's holding cell. And at the end of verse 3, John explains why. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Apparently, God isn't through with Satan. He still has a use for him. Verse 8 will explain his final purpose. But this brings up an interesting sidebar. Satan's existence, even his mischief, has always been at God's allowance. Not that God approves of the devil's specific acts. He doesn't. The evil that Satan authors and the pain it causes grieves God's heart. Nevertheless, God permits Satan some latitude. God uses trials and temptations to strengthen our faith. And neither has any teeth without a tempter. At the end of the age, Satan must be released for a little while. And for the same reason, he wreaks havoc today. Notice also the duration here of Satan's incarceration. A thousand years. In Latin, it's the term millennium. This is why you'll hear terms like the millennial reign of Christ or the millennial kingdom or just millennium. The first word in chapter 20 then implies that what follows is chronological. In Revelation 19, Jesus returns to destroy the armies who oppose him. Chapter 20, verse 1 begins, and then... In other words, here's what comes next. Jesus, Satan is chained and Jesus will reign and both are sustained for a thousand years. After Jesus' second coming, he'll set up his kingdom on the earth. And Jesus won't just rule by himself. John writes in verse 4, And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. The army that rode with Jesus from heaven will now help him rule on earth. That includes you and me, the church, but not just the church. He says, for then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. The believers who were martyred during the Great Tribulation will now serve in Jesus' administration. They were mocked and martyred for Jesus' sake. Now they'll sit on thrones and help him rule. Verse 4, And they lived and reigned with Christ 
for a thousand years. What a statement. For they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is our destiny. You know, the first message that Jesus preached was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came to establish God's kingdom on earth. Yet in Jesus' day, in fact, even in our day, no one is able to point to God's kingdom on the map. His reign has no borders or buildings or budgets. It's invisible. It's spiritual. His kingdom is known only in the hearts of believers. In Luke chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, that is, with fanfare or with outward demonstration. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Today, Jesus rules over men's hearts. He rules an invisible spiritual kingdom. Yet still, the Old Testament is packed with prophecies of a coming king who will sit on an earthly throne, who will rule visibly and tangibly over a geographic kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 7 predicts that a descendant of David will sit on the throne of Israel and rule the world forever. This is the prophecy the angel quoted Mary when she discovered that she was with child. This is the prophecy we talk about every Christmas. Luke tells us, He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The Old Testament predicts that God will put an end to the governments of mankind. And he'll establish a physical, political kingdom on planet earth. His throne will be in Jerusalem and all the world will come and bow to him. That Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. That he'll be the police. And the fulfillment of these promises occurs here in Revelation 19 and 20. In his model prayer, Jesus told us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, now here in chapter 20, at Jesus' second coming, this prayer is finally and fully answered. Imagine Jesus' inauguration day. What a day it'll be. In Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount, he'll address the throngs of people from all over the planet. He'll articulate the goals of his administration. His first term, he ruled spiritually. Now in his second term, he will rule legally and corporally. On the cross, Jesus redeemed or purchased planet Earth. When he returns, he'll take possession of what he's purchased. One day soon, our world will be under new management. Revelation 20 gives us only the duration of Jesus' kingdom, a thousand years. But there are a host of Old Testament prophecies that provide us many other details. We're told of the quality of life and the changes of the earth's ecosystem, even the lifestyle of folks who live in the kingdom. You remember one of the plagues that we studied in the Great Tribulation is the poisoning of the waters. Well, Ezekiel 47 verses 8 and 9 describe how the earth's waters will be healed and rejuvenated during this kingdom age. Isaiah 30 verses 23 through 26 tell us that there'll be longer periods of sunshine to revitalize the devastated planet, to restore the vegetation to the earth. 
Under Jesus' administration, the earth will be restored to the garden paradise it once was. We'll be living in Eden again. Isaiah 11 tells us how God's kingdom will impact even the animal kingdom. He'll He'll resolve the hostility that exists today between men and animals. Verse 6 tells us, the wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. Natural born predators will no longer exist. God will even alter the food chain. Animals will no longer be carnivores. Imagine this. Bulldogs will no longer be at odds with gators. Yellow jackets won't try to sting bulldogs. Isaiah 11 tells us that God will remove the fear that today protects humans from animals and vice versa. Verse 8 of Isaiah 11, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. What a world that will be. Mom, your baby's favorite pet will be a copperhead. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6 tell us that there'll be no birth defects in this kingdom age. No Down syndrome or cleft palates or spina bifida. Isaiah 65, verse 20 comments on on longer lifespans for people on the earth. A man 100 years old will be considered a child. You know, the Bible tells us that before Noah's flood, men lived to old ages, 600, 700, 900 years old. The phenomena of aging is a mystery to us. We really don't know what triggers the aging process. Whatever it is, Jesus will lift it in the kingdom age. In Romans chapter 8, we're told that today creation groans as it awaits its redemption. You remember Julie Andrews once sang, The hills are alive with the sound of music. But they're playing in a minor key. Creation is groaning over man's fall. When mankind sinned, he threw a wrench into the gears of life. A capriciousness appeared in nature. Today, the gentle rains that water your lawn can also flood a city. The breeze that lifts a kite off the ground can splinter a house. After the fall, twisters and hurricanes went on a crime spree. Random acts of violence. Nature went nuts. Today, Mother Nature has a terrible case of PMS. In a fallen world, nature is now a mixture of both beauty and brutality. Every time I hear a tree creak or a dog howl, I wonder if they're not expressing the angst they feel over the conditions they're forced to endure in a fallen world. And yet one day, the curse of sin will be lifted. When Jesus reigns over planet earth, the natural order will be restored to its former and perfect and peaceful state. Everything that sin has touched, Jesus intends to restore. And yet the greatest benefit of living in the kingdom age will be the unlimited access we'll have to Jesus. Isaiah 2 verses 2 and 4 describe how people will flow to the king there in Jerusalem. And Jesus will teach us his ways. Verse 4 tells us, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What a day. Under the influence of King Jesus, this war-torn world will finally know peace. 
And peace won't just be on a global scale. It'll be local as well. In the millennial, there'll be no deadbolts or security alarms. Crime will be reduced to a minimum. For there'll be no Satan. He'll be chained for a thousand years. Jesus will enforce what's right and punish what's evil. And realize during the millennial kingdom of Christ, a strange mixture of people will occupy planet earth. Mortal men will be living alongside resurrected believers. There'll be humans who survive the great tribulation. People will then be born in the millennium. Folks will continue to marry and give birth with improved conditions and longer lifespans. A population explosion will occur. These survivors and their offspring will retain a sin nature. And even without the devil's influence from time to time, they'll need to be corrected. And they'll be saved the same way we are, by grace through faith. But along with the earth's population of mortals, the church, along with the Old Testament saints and the tribulation believers, will also live on planet earth. After we descend with Jesus at his second coming, we'll hang out and help him rule. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12 tells us, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. How about this promise? 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2 asks, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And the implication is, we will. Think of the lessons we'll be able to teach mortals in the kingdom age. Through the things we've experienced, through our trials and tears and heartaches, we've learned the effects of sin. We've learned the importance of faith. We've put together quite a resume. And when people living in God's kingdom need to be reminded of why it's wise to obey the Lord, we'll have firsthand knowledge that we can share of our experiences. Remember what Jesus said to the faithful servant in Luke chapter 19. He said, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little. Have authority over ten cities. Imagine this. Authority and government in God's kingdom are one of the rewards we'll receive for our current faithfulness. I don't know if I've ever told you, but... One of the reasons I'm serving the Lord today, the best that I can, is I'm hoping to get, an get a few tropical islands assigned to me in the kingdom age. In the millennial kingdom, we'll live among the mortals on earth. But according to 1 Corinthians 15, by this point, we'll have immortal, incorruptible bodies. At the rapture, we'll receive our resurrected bodies. I can't wait. I'm 62 and my body's breaking down a little bit these days. My back hurts and my knees start aching when I'm playing golf. And I got some aches and pains. One day, I'm going to have a resurrected body, a perfect body. Our bodies will have the same capacities Jesus had after his resurrection. Recall how he would pop in and out on his disciples. His body wasn't confined materially or spatially. He could dematerialize and reappear. The disciples thought he was a ghost until they saw him eat and they touched him and they felt the scars of his crucifixion. And you and I will have the same type of resurrected body. I like to say we'll travel at the speed of want. Desire to go to Hawaii for the day and boom, there you are. As we talk about this future kingdom, you should know 
that not all Bible teachers agree with its literalness. Some Christians teach an amillennialism, that is, no millennium. Amillennialism assumes that the thousand-year reign of Christ is merely symbolic of the church, that one day Jesus will return and just wrap things up in one act. Other people advocate postmillennialism, that Jesus returns only after mankind brings about a golden age on earth. And the job of the church today is to create a utopian society that will usher in the second coming of Jesus. One current form of postmillennialism is called Kingdom Now theology. Rather than expect Jesus to return, Christians should take over all the earthly institutions now. The goal should be to Christianize society and government, create a political, social kingdom right here and now. This was the mistake first century Jews made when they tried to fashion Jesus into a political Messiah. He refused to cooperate then, and he refuses to cooperate now. His earthly kingdom is still future. Here's the problem with post and amillennialism. If the church is God's kingdom and we're currently in the thousand-year reign of Christ, well, then why isn't Satan bound? Boy, take one look at the filth on the Internet or violence in the streets. And if we're currently in the kingdom, wow, then Satan must have a pretty long chain. For me, amillennialism and postmillennialism fall flat on two counts. First, they put too much emphasis on the work and wisdom of mankind. If humans can solve a particular dilemma facing the planet, then we should. But ultimately, the answers for the questions we're facing are found in God, not in our wisdom. And second, both schools of interpretation take the unfulfilled promises that God has made to Israel and apply them to the church. This denies the Bible's literalness. God has made Old Testament promises to Israel that are actual and factual, and they will come about in real time. God still has work to do among his people, Israel, and we'll see it come to pass in the kingdom age. This is why I am a premillennialist. I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus will literally and physically return to planet earth He'll usher in God's glorious kingdom all by himself. He'll reign for a thousand years, restore that all that sin is damaged, and in the process fulfill every single promise that God has made to the nation Israel. <clears throat> Come, Lord Jesus. Back to our text, John writes in verse 5, he says, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. In John 5, Jesus spoke of two resurrections. He said, For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Believers are raised to life. Unbelievers are raised to judgment. And both resurrections are found here in, Re in Revelation 20. What Jesus didn't mention in John 5 is that a thousand years separates these two resurrections. What the Bible calls the first resurrection actually occurs in three waves. It began the first Easter. 
The New Testament calls our Lord Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. That means Jesus was the first of the first to overcome death, never to die again. Then the church joins in this resurrection at the rapture, followed by the Old Testament believers and tribulation martyrs who join in at the end of the age. This is all the first resurrection. The second resurrection, that is, the rest of the dead aren't resurrected until the thousand years ends. As Jesus said in John 5, God resurrects unbelievers to condemnation. We'll see this in verse 11. At the great white throne of judgment, the bottomless pit empties out, and the rest of the dead appear before their maker to receive their permanent, final, fatal sentence. See, here's the moral of the story. Be part of the first resurrection. Don't be a member of the second resurrection. For we're told in verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now in verse 7, the plot thickens. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And it's not difficult to guess what Satan does. Now remember, Satan has been chained for a thousand years. He's had time to reflect, to take a personal inventory. He's thought it through. He's considered his mistakes. If he ever wanted to turn over a new leaf, this would be it. But no, not hardly. For the moment he's released, he goes right back to his lies and his rebellion. Like a criminal who refuses rehabilitation, as soon as he hits the streets, he's out for revenge. We're told Satan goes to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, players of an earlier war in Ezekiel 39. To gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. Did you hear about the devout Christian lady who, she was dirt poor. She lived hand to mouth. And yet she trusted God for all her needs. And the Lord always supplied. Of course, her atheist neighbor couldn't figure her out. If God really existed, why was she always in need? One day he overheard her desperate prayer. Oh, Lord, please, I'm so hungry. Please provide. Well, the atheist decided he would teach this woman a lesson. He went to the grocery store. He loaded up several bags of food. He set them on the doorstep and then rang the doorbell and then went hid in the bushes. Well, as soon as she opened the door and saw the groceries, she said, praise the Lord. God's heard my prayer. That's when the atheist came out of the bushes. He scoffed at the lady. He said, God didn't bring you those groceries. I did. The woman answered, praise the Lord. God heard my prayer and sent the devil to make the delivery. <laughs> you know, Martin Luther once described Satan as God's ape. Like an organ grinder's monkey, the devil exists for the master's purposes. Even Satan's rebellion plays right into God's hands. He's the puppet on God's string. Think of the cross for a moment. I'm sure Satan relished the pain inflicted on Jesus, the beating, the nails, the rejection. And yet it's by his stripes we are healed. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
He was wounded for our transgressions. He was rejected so we could be accepted. At the cross, Satan played right into God's hands. And here's another example of how unwittingly he serves God's purposes. For the last several decades, the big debate in psychology has been over nature or nurture. Which is the greater determinator of human behavior? Is our corruption the result of some genetic defect, our own nature? Or can it be traced to our nurturing or a deficient environment? If my problem is me, I have nobody to blame but myself. But if it's my environment, then I can blame everyone and everybody. This is why our culture says nurture is more important. If I'm a sinner, then it's because I had bad parents or because I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks or I had a poor education or evil friends or I couldn't find a job. Excuses, excuses, excuses. But at the end of the thousand years, God steps into this debate. He ensures that no one walks off into an eternity in hell thinking that they have a legitimate excuse. For at this point, for a thousand years, mankind has existed in a perfect environment. Jesus has occupied the throne. The world has been made brand new. Peace and prosperity, holiness and happiness reigns across the globe. Folks have been treated flawlessly. Yet people who populate the planet are still sinners at heart. Like men today, they're born with a sin nature. With Jesus on the throne, they've lived by his rules and they're better for it. But they've only conformed to an external standard. They haven't been transformed by the Holy Spirit. These people need to be born again. And no one realizes it until Satan is let loose for a short season. For all of a sudden, people have a choice. The devil tempts them. Oh, you know better than God. Oh, who needs God anyway? You can be your own God. The same kind of lies we are listening to today. But the people at the end of the kingdom age will hear it for the first time. And it will strike a chord in their hearts. It will inflame their rebellious nature. The nature that's been simmering inside. Even after a thousand years in a perfect world, the human race will still rebel because it's in their nature to do so. And here God proves for all time that humans have sin in their heart. That the old adage is true. Sinning doesn't make you a sinner. You sin because you are a sinner. Selfishness and rebellion are embedded in human nature What happens at the end of the millennium proves that at the heart of man's problem is the problem of the heart. Mankind is a rebel by nature. Verse 9 tells us, They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. This flimsy coup that dares to lay siege to Jesus' capital city, this final insurrection, How dare anyone attack Jesus after he's been so good? And yet the revolt gets put down in short order. We're told fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And now the instigator finally gets his due. Verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. 
And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You remember Jesus said that the lake of fire wasn't made for man. It was never intended for human beings. It was created for Satan and his angels. And here Satan is sent to his ultimate destination. Verse 11 tells us, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. And what an ominous sight this is. White is the color of holiness and purity. A throne speaks of authority. And great has the sound of permanence. I believe it's Jesus Christ who sits on this throne. You know, we'll learn in verse 12 that this is a throne of judgment. And recall the long list of people who judged Jesus. The high priest Caiaphas stood in judgment of him. Herod the king, the Jewish Sanhedrin, Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator, the mob that screamed, crucify him, crucify him. They all stood in judgment of Jesus. Now imagine each of them appearing at his throne to be judged by Jesus. The roles are now reversed. Trust me, there'll be a lot of squirming going on. The reason people appear at this throne of judgment is because they've rejected Jesus. They judged Jesus as unfit to follow. I hope you haven't made that mistake. Now it's his turn to judge them and see how they stack up to God's righteousness. Verse 11 tells us, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, whose face the earth, before whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Before this great white throne, everything disintegrates. You know, after a thousand years of renovations, after renewing all that sin has worn out, finally God decides to ditch the earth and the heavens and start brand new. And why would God do that? (laughs) I don't pretend to know all his reasons. But perhaps he wants us to know that this world and all that's in it has simply been a stage. The stuff that we valued are nothing but props and symbols. What truly matters are the things that last forever. 2 Peter 3 verse 10 foreshadows this future inferno. It says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. The laws of physics teach us that like charges repel. Yet at the center of every atom is a cluster of bonded protons. Scientists explain the mystery of how atoms hold together with terms like the atomic glue or or perhaps the God particle. Their explanations are vague at best. But the Bible, on the other hand, is quite clear. Colossians 1 verse 17 tells us that in Christ all things consist. It's Jesus who holds all things together, the universe together. And one day, he's just going to let go. He's going to turn loose. And the elements will melt with a fervent heat. We're headed for a meltdown. And that day, all that's left will be mankind and our maker. 
And then suddenly everyone in the bottomless pit, all unbelievers, every rebel who's rejected God's salvation will stand before Jesus and answer for their decision. Verse 12 tells us, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. These books contain every deed ever done. At this great white throne, everything will be exposed. Nothing will remain hidden. Every person who has rejected the work of Christ on the cross is judged by the deeds that they did and the merit that they mustered. Realize there are four judgments spoken of in Scripture. First is the cross. On Mount Calvary, in the person of Jesus, God judged the sin of the world. The punishment due my sin, the punishment due all sin, was taken out on Jesus. He bore our judgment so that God could forgive us. And when you trust in Jesus, your sin is judged forever. Well, the second future judgment is the judgment seat of Christ. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's called the Bema Seat. And here the issue is not our sin as much as it is our service. A believer's work is judged to see what reward we'll receive. Our motivation gets tested. Good deeds done out of love for God will be valued as gold and silver and precious stones, whereas service done out of pride or out of selfish motivation will be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. Third is the judgment of the nations, a future judgment that occurs at Jesus' second coming in the valley of Jehoshaphat outside Jerusalem. Joel 3 and Matthew 25 tell us how Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. And it will be determined by how they treated the least of these. His brothers, his sisters, the people of Israel. That will become the criteria for this judgment. And then the fourth judgment is here. The great white throne of judgment. This is not for believers In Revelation 4, we saw believers gathered around, not a great white throne, but a multicolored throne. The multicolor represents the manifold grace of God. It's surrounded by a rainbow, a symbol of his faithfulness. Four living creatures are present, each one representing different aspects of Jesus' ministry. And yet what a contrast we have here. This throne is large and looming. It's stark white. It represents God's unapproachable holiness. Unforgiven sinners beware at the great white throne of judgment. If you're in Christ, your sin was judged at the cross. But the people under scrutiny here are judged according to their works, we're told. And I don't know about you, but the last thing I want is to stand before God on the merit of my own works. I mean, who but Jesus lived a life good enough for a sinless, spotless God? Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us that in God's sight, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. If judged according to my efforts, I'm in big trouble. I'm resting not in my works, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Aren't you glad that God doesn't grade on the curve, but on the cross? Verse 13 tells us 
The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Hades opens its hatches and all the unbelieving dead are condemned before God. Nobody stands a chance here. Romans 3 verse 23 gives the verdict. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Remember, Hades is a temporary holding. It's kind of like the county jail. You know, it's where the spirits of unbelievers are today. In Luke 16, the rich man suffers in the flames of Hades, but it's not his permanent punishment. Gehenna, or the lake of fire, is the supermax prison. The lake of fire is the final assignment. Once you've found lacking, been found lacking at the great white throne, you're sent to the lake of fire. And despite popular lore, there are no keg parties at the lake of fire. There are no wild orgies. There are no beer buddies. They won't be there to welcome you at the lake of fire. Only fire and brimstone. Only scorching regret. And thus, verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. See, physical death is the first death, but the lake, eternal damnation, is the second death. You know, there's an old saying, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Come to Jesus, be born again, and you'll face only physical death. The first death is not the one to fear. The second death is the lake of fire. And then chapter 20 closes. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And here is the most pressing question you'll ever be asked. Is your name written in the book of life? Is it? Is your name written in the book of life? You need to ask yourself that question. Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you leaning on the cross of Christ or are you standing on your own merits? Are you headed back to the garden or are you on your way to the lake of fire? That's the question we all need to ask. Father, we want to pause for a few moments here this morning. Lord, I'm, I'm sure we've all been caught up with things at hand, with the current political situation and all the rest of the things that are going on in our lives and in our world. And we've, we've been so wrapped up in the here and now. It would do us all much good to look beyond that this morning, to look to the end of the age and to the end of our lives